Welcome to The Bridge, fun conversations on culture, life, and everything in between. Welcome to The Bridge. My name is Jason. I'm from California, living here in Beijing. Find us where you get your podcasts. If you like the show, then consider pushing the like button or giving us five stars. Suggestions, comments, anything you would like to share, email us at welovethebridge at gmail.com. We love the bridge. Today we have Andy Mock, who is a senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization, where he focuses on technology and its impact on great power relations. A former analyst for the Rand Corporation, he holds an MBA from the Wharton School in Philadelphia and an MA in China Studies from the John Hopkins University School for Advanced International Studies. He's a regular commentator for CGTN, Al Jazeera, BBC, and other media outlets. You can find him on Twitter at Andy Mock. That's M-O-K. Welcome to the show, Andy. Great to be with you, Jason. You're in Cambridge. Are you doing research there, sir? I am. So I'm here uh, researching my book on the past, present, and future of technology in China. Wow. That's exactly the kind of thing I was hoping to talk to you about. I've actually always wondered about Huawei because it's not just a telecommunications company. I was wondering uh, if you could enlighten us about what are its current opportunities, challenges, where you see it going in the next few years. Well, Jason, certainly Huawei is one of the great Chinese success success stories. Um, Ren Zhengfei, the the founder, uh, started with a basically a classic uh, trading import export business, and I think through his vision, uh, his determination, his grit. Um, and is uh, to, he turned uh, Huawei into a true technology company? Um, you know, last numbers I saw, you know, it uh, invests as a percentage of revenue, uh, some of the highest, uh, not just in China but anywhere in the world. So, it's become known uh, not just in China but all around the world for. Uh, smartphones, uh, well, consumer-facing devices. But what's less well known <laughs> is they're also a major force in all of the vital equipment that people don't see uh, that make uh, a modern mobile digital life possible. So one of the big challenges uh, Huawei has faced in recent years is precisely because of its technology leadership. Uh, in areas like 5G, uh, which many expect will revolutionize uh, mm. the world like 4G did, mm. uh, that this caused enormous uh, alarm in the United States and the U.S. government took really unprecedented actions to uh, attack uh, kneecap Huawei. And, you know, this is where we are today. I think uh, a, a bit of a long preface to answering your question, what are their mm -hmm. opportunities? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think we really have to see. I think the other uh, part of the Huawei story is that it really shows you um, the importance of geopolitics in mm -hmm. technology. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, they have lost access to some of the most advanced semiconductors. Um, they mm -hmm. have their own unit, a high silicon 
uh, to design chips as well. And of course, with these latest uh, round of sanctions, not just against Huawei, but um, the entire Chinese technology sector, uh, that access to semiconductor equipment, not just the chips, but the equipment uh, and even personnel uh, are highly, highly constrained. So I think it's hard to say what are the exact opportunities facing mm-hmm. the bank. I think the spirit that Huawei has certainly uh, still exists, and I'm sure they will find a way to adapt to this uh, this new world that we're in. You know, I have a an un- slightly related question about uh, semiconductors, if you know. Um, does China have like a res- reserve of semiconductors? Because if it's currently not able to import those, does it have access for the next couple of years to keep producing the technology that we all use? Yeah, that's a great question, Jason. So um, if we roll the clock back several years, um, I think many, including uh, senior executives at Huawei, uh, the Chinese government um, could envision this happening. So of course, before the first round of sanctions went into place, uh, I think there was a lot of stocking up by companies Mm. Huawei. So uh, in the short term, I think certainly the inventory was available, but of course the issue now is we're several years into this. So sooner or later, you know, these stocks will run out. And we have to see again, um, I think the good news on this is that there is still a little bit of a moving target in that for the US, uh, for the United States government, on the one hand, they rightly or wrongly uh, don't want to slow down China's technological rise. At the same time, they also have to be responsive uh, to the concerns and the needs of major American tech companies, because we shouldn't forget that uh, in terms of chip supply, it's companies like Qualcomm, like uh, NVIDIA, uh, even like a company like Intel, you know, still supplies a lot of chips. And in some instances, I think more than 50% of their revenue comes from China. So this government is, is in a way walking a fine line. But of course, directionally, it doesn't look very promising. And I think the concern for many Americans is that the U.S. government uh, will end up shooting itself in the foot and gutting the uh, American tech companies that currently have leadership in the space, because what they're doing uh, is forcing China to develop its own capacity. And, you know, once China does that, you know, how much opportunities there are going to be for American tech companies. You're listening to The Bridge. Um, Let's move on. Since you are an expert in tech and how that affects great power relations, China has gotten into space in a big way. It's the only country in the world able to do the uh, far side of the moon exploration because it has a satellite that orbits that's able to communicate with its rover there. It has also developed its own space station. Where do you see uh, the Chinese National Space Agency or CNSA going next? No, another great question, uh, Jason. So China has set out on a path 
to uh, make uh, significant contributions in the technology space uh, for man, for China, but also for mankind. Mm. And you know, despite the, this opposition uh, from the U.S., but I think uh, China is very, very committed to this. Whether this is in semiconductors, whether it's in space exploration, whether it's in other uh, areas, and here. You know, this is certainly not, these developments you mentioned certainly are milestones, um, but I think they're only the latest mm -hmm. in a literally decades-long effort for China to uh, be one of the major countries when it comes to space exploration. You know, a little bit of history here. So if we go back uh, to the 50s, the 60s, uh, there was a scientist named Chen uh, uh, Sun who uh, really was established um, this uh, the space exploration intercontinental ballistic missiles uh, in China. And he's widely regarded as, as the father of aerospace um, in China. So there were a number of uh, equally, I would say, impressive achievements over the decades from a uh, time when you know, it was a very different China in terms of the uh, the economic resources that were available in terms of the number of uh, highly qualified science and technology personnel that despite these very challenging circumstances, uh, China still was able to uh, develop intercontinental ballistic missiles, launch a satellite, um, you know, a number of other uh, again, very, very impressive technological achievements. I think these latest uh, space exploration uh, achievements are just the latest generation, and we will certainly continue to see more going forward. Yeah, actually, I had the opportunity to go to the National Museum here in Beijing, and uh, I was standing, I don't know, two feet from actual moon regolith. I was, because they had sent, you know, uh, a non-person, you know, a robotic craft to the moon, retrieved the regolith and brought it back for scientific study. They took mm -hmm. a small portion of that regolith and put it in the National Museum for people like you and me to go, you know, I don't know, maybe you can go to some other scientific place and see it in person. But I was just, it was one of the great moments of my life standing like, you know, a couple of feet from the moon in kind of a way. It was, it's a remarkable thing that China has been able to make that accomplishment. I also understand that the uh, Chinese space station is going to be open for research for uh, countries around the world who want to participate with China in scientific endeavors in space, which I think is amazing. China has been locked out by the United States from the ISS and cooperation. Do you think that it's likely now that China has almost catched up with caught up with the United States in this kind of technology that the US and China would conceivably be able to cooperate in space technology in the next 10 or 20 years? Yeah, that's a great question. I think certainly uh if cooperation is possible, that certainly would be beneficial. Um, you know, I think one of the issues, of course, is what's happening here on Earth. Mm. Uh, these geopolitical tensions worsen. Of course, that makes it more difficult for cooperation uh, in any area. Uh, I think, though, one of the obstacles uh, also may be American pride. And, you know, we've seen with the latest uh, news developments that, uh, you know, Americans, the American government, but to a degree, the American people as well have this uh, sense of exceptionalism. Somehow they are 
above and immune to uh, some of the difficulties that uh, everyone in the rest of the world has to deal with. Um, and I think this really gets in the way of a uh, more harmonious relationship with China, because I think at the root of this, of course, the United States and some Americans feel threatened by China's economic rise and now technological rise, because so much you think of American uh, self-worth and identity is based on being better than everyone else. <laughs> so in, in some ways, it can be uh, seen perhaps as humiliating to have mm. to partner with the Chinese on something as advanced as space exploration. But, mm. you know, we have to see. Um, going back to semiconductors, you mentioned that maybe the United States tactics are um, taking away semiconductor, American semiconductor and their partners' uh biggest client. But do you think that it is possible that China is going to be able to catch up in the midterm in the next, you know, two or three years in kind of high-end uh, semiconductor technology so that it can become more self-reliant or maybe participate with other willing global partners? Well, that's the, the big question, Jason. So uh, many experts uh, in the West, but actually some in China as well, I believe that it will be enormously expensive, difficult, perhaps uh, some have even said impossible for China to catch up. Um, you know, some estimates I've seen is that it could take more than a trillion dollars. Um, but, you know, I'm a little bit less pessimistic about this for a couple of reasons. So first, we all recognize just how crucial semiconductors are to modern civilized life, everything from uh, our consumers' daily lives, you know, getting around, um, doing what we all- Even a coffee machine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, to space exploration, to national security, um, that it's hard to imagine a more vital uh, input than semiconductors. So I think China, as a great power, uh, really, in a way, has no choice, even though it may be difficult, even though it might be very expensive, uh, has to do this. So I think that's the first point. And we've seen China, certainly since 49, overcome what have seemed to be insurmountable odds. And again, I go back to Tianzue Sun with the um, intercontinental <laughs> ballistic missiles, the space program. Uh, but even Deng's economic reform, you know, you're probably far too young to remember this. But, you know, at the time, there was incredible skepticism in the West that this was possible, um, that China could uh, grow its economy. And of course, even I think Deng himself was surprised uh, by how successful this was. So I think there's that. And then finally, um, we have to recognize that a lot of the challenges in uh, creating uh, or perhaps recreating a semiconductor value chain supply chain uh, is not scientific in that uh, the, the science, the technologies, the processes are all known. So it's uh, recreating. So this, I think, makes makes it easier. Now, of course, there's a little bit of, uh, maybe we could call it black magic in terms of making semiconductors in that it's, if you have the recipe, but you don't have necessarily the right touch, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just like we all can be given a recipe for making a dish, but some people, because of experience, 
even though working with the same ingredients, the same recipe, will get you know quite a noticeably different result. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. there is an element of this in the semiconductor uh, production process. So I wouldn't underestimate how difficult it is, but also I think it's important to recognize just how important this is for China and any country. Uh, and given not only the economic resources that China has, but I think you, the unique political, the ability to generate and apply political will, I think is, mm -hmm. is quite unique uh, for certainly a country this size. So, you know, I, I'm less pessimistic and, um, you know, but again, we have to, we have to see. You're listening to The Bridge. I have a question about scientists themselves. So there are a lot of scientists in the U.S. who cooperate with scientists in China. And there are also a lot of Chinese national scientists working in the U.S. How do you feel um, or what do you think the current environment, how does this affecting them, both U.S. scientists and Chinese national scientists based in, in the U.S.? Sure. Well, one of the, I think, uh, foundational principles of scientific research is that openness and sharing collaboration is vital. And anything that uh, restricts that, I think, mm -hmm. would slow down the rate of scientific progress. And of course, this is to the detriment of everyone in the world. So I think in this way, uh, what the U.S. is doing is uh, not only counterproductive for its own interest, but certainly is harming uh, the broader interest of, of mankind. So that's a, perhaps a more abstract way of looking at it. Um, I think on the ground, uh, certainly, um, you know, I, I know of personal cases where scientists do feel frustrated um, by these uh, this this new regime that that we're in. And then we should then focus on the Chinese American uh, or Chinese uh, the scientists, researchers that want to work with the United States. And of course, this has become enormously challenging. Um, you know, we saw with the uh, the, the so-called China Initiative, where the FBI, the U.S. secret police, uh, were targeting uh, mm -hmm. scientists of Chinese ancestry. Uh, and I think there was a, a fairly famous case of one at MIT uh, that was actually charged and, you know, basically destroyed his professional life. Mm. Um, and even though, the, you know, the, it was ultimately discovered, surprise, surprise, uh, that there was nothing there, uh, still the damage had been done because, uh, you know, he was uh, Chen Gong, I think. Is it Chen Gong, right? I'm actually not. I don't remember his name. I remember the case. Yeah. Uh, you know, was one of the leading scientists in his field. And, you know, when you're at that level, um, you know, one of the issues is uh, it's not just your own work, but you're leading running a lab. And like any high performing organization, you know, whether you're a championship basketball team or you're, a, you know, a trillion dollar 
uh, public listed tech company, the team is vitally important, and it's mm. not easy to put together a team. So, uh, you know, he was unable to do any research uh, for, I believe, like a couple years, you know, while all this was was unfolding. And um, as a result, he lost many of the people. They had to, you know, move on, unfortunately. Mm. So, uh, you know, really just uh, destroyed his professional career. And I think it sent a signal to many other uh, Chinese American researchers. And in fact, you know, here in Cambridge, I've had the opportunity to talk to a number of, uh, you know, very, very talented, productive scholars in a number of fields. And, you know, many of them are voting with their feet. They had previously been in the United States. I wouldn't say many, but certainly there are some. There are some. And there's, I think, a very real phenomenon of if you can, you want to get out of the U.S. Um, you know, as as someone with uh, high skills, uh, a lot to contribute, um, that you're better off finding more congenial uh, environments. I'm looking at the introduction. You were at John Hopkins School for Advanced International Studies. Um, I've been doing quite a bit of research on the Belt and Road myself. And from what I can tell, John Hopkins has the most advanced research lab for the Belt and Road in the United States. Did you get an opportunity to uh, look at some of the Belt and Road initiative research while you were there or participate? Uh, no. So I was actually there long before the, the BRI was announced. Um, so I certainly not not as a student, mm -hmm. um, you know, what I was able to do, um, you know, SICE being located in downtown DC and actually not that far uh, from the White House, uh, is that, you know, one of the, I think, privileges of being in a capital city mm -hmm. uh, is that you get so many people passing through. Uh, so the lectures, the, you know, the, the more informal so-called brown bag lunches, uh, really were phenomenal. We even had uh, Bill Clinton come to speak, but uh, no, uh, not uh, the, anything BRI as a student, but certainly I do keep up with what's going on uh, with the Belt and Road Initiative. And I agree with you. I think uh, SICE does some uh, great research. I think also in Africa as well, uh, they, they do they do a good job. You're listening to The Bridge. You know, um, I didn't give you, so this is everyone who's watching and listening, I didn't give you a heads up. I was going to ask you about the Belt and Road, but I was wondering if you could comment about you know, maybe a little bit about global infrastructure development, China financing, because you have an MBA and you do know quite a bit about China. What are your comments about the Belt and Road Initiative? What do you think of this this global phenomenon? Well, I think, um, you know, that we can understand the Belt and Road Initiative uh, of course, as a uh, international relations diplomatic initiative, but I think we can also, uh, and then this is well covered, but I think we can also look at it as a manifestation of Chinese values. So, you know, one of the things that my book looks at is how does uh, Chinese history, values, worldview. Uh, affect its technological decisions today. And if we apply that kind of thinking uh, to the Belt and Road Initiative, I think we can learn some interesting things. Um, one is that there actually is a very clear continuation between 
uh, imperial China. So the China of the Qing and the Han, you know, which is the Qing first unified these various countries in a way that were like Europe uh, into one uh, country, you know, of course, we know as China today. This is um, in the BC. We're talking about 2000 years ago. Yeah. Uh, yes. Well, well uh, the maybe I would say 100 ish, 200 ish BC. Yes. So more than 2000 years ago. But we see, uh, you know, a lot of this continuity. It's not just the language. So in the Qing, they developed the uh, the script, you know, that we now call Hans, right, or, or Chinese mm -hmm. characters. Um, so anyway, um, the point being that at that time as well, to create a new national identity of being Chinese versus being, you know, they, you weren't a citizen, then you were a subject of, you know, the pre-existing country. So think, you know, as, a, as, as an analogy, you know, you were German, you were French, but now you're this new identity, Europa or something, right? So to become Chinese, uh, one of the important things uh, the, the first uh, Qing emperor had to do was create a new ideology. And this was based on Confucianism. And some scholars will say there were five texts. Some others will say six. But the point here being that uh, these values were based on humanity and benevolence. And the worldview was being very pragmatic. So we see today, you know, with, say, the United States, you know, these notions of promoting freedom and human rights around the world, making the world safe for democracy. Um, in some sense, you know, these are not very pragmatic goals. Uh, they're, you know, quite ideological. And the thing, the hallmark of China, I think, through these thousands of years, and certainly from 78 through today uh, with reform and opening, um, is both benevolence and pragmatism. And this is what motivates the Belt and Road Initiative. And I think, again, for people fortunate enough to live in the developed world, especially, you know, what I call the weird countries, uh, the Western, educated, industrialized, rich and democratic uh, countries, they have no conception of this. But, you know, if you don't have running water, if you don't have elect uh, reliable electricity, if you don't have sanitation, if you don't have a road, uh, your life is pretty awful, frankly. And what China's Belt and Road Initiative is doing, you know, set out to do um, and is doing is exactly providing what the people, many people around the world absolutely need. You know, they don't need democracy. They don't need uh, freedom of the press, right? <laughs> um, but what they do need is uh, economic uh prosperity and they need stability. So this is what uh, the BRI is designed to do, you know, whether it's railways in Kenya, right? Whether it's, uh, you know, sanitation projects in Indonesia. So I think that, you know, of course, uh, this helps China uh, win friends, but it also is a very clear and direct manifestation of these traditional Chinese values of benevolence and the worldview of pragmatism. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. You're listening to The Bridge.
Uh, moving along, you've written an article, Reflections on China's Rise to Technology Leadership. In what ways do you see China becoming another pole of scientific innovation? This term innovation gets thrown around a lot in the U.S. regarding China, and I thought uh, it would be interesting to get your view. Sure. Well, you know, in that article, um, you know, I kind of share some of my experience over, gosh, maybe more than 20 years and, uh, you know, around innovation and technology and innovation in China and just the remarkable changes uh, that have happened. Um, you know, once upon a time in a previous life, uh, I was working in venture capital. And, you know, one of my jobs was to look uh, for opportunities uh, in China. And at that time, you know, I think very naturally so, uh, what made the most sense was uh, to find something that worked in the United States and then replicate it in China. So, you know, the joke, it was C to C, which most people at the time interpreted as consumer to consumer, you know, like an eBay. Um, but, you know, that took on a new meaning in China. It was copy to China. So, you know, the idea was, you know, could you find a bright, hardworking group of people in China that could build the next Google, could build the next Facebook? Um, and of course, you know, as investors, what you're doing is you're always looking uh, to uh, increase your risk-adjusted return. Of course, you know, we all understand that uh, investors put in X amount of money hoping to get more, the, more out of it than they put in. Um, but in a more sophisticated way, you also have to do your best to measure the risk. So if you have the chance to make, you know, I don't know, 5X your money, you put in $100, you get 500 out. But you have one opportunity that requires 10 times the risk. Of course, you probably shouldn't do that. Um, so the risk then, of course, is, you know, why take technology risk? Why create something new if you already have something that works? Hmm. So, so it was a very rational thing to do. But also, I think it made sense given the, the, the state of uh, China's technological development at that point. Now, if we look at today, we have... Uh, companies that truly are innovative in a global, even civilizational uh, way, I would argue. Uh, you know, if we all know, we that live in China all know about WeChat and how it's become the remote control for our lives online and offline. And even today uh, in the West, they haven't been able to achieve this, right? This level of integration, this level of uh, convenience. Uh, that people in I China. Think, I think Musk recently said he was hoping he could try to copy WeChat. Absolutely. Well, so a few years ago, there you know there was a, a joke that um, you know if you want to know what Amazon is going to do in two or three years, look at what Alibaba is doing today. And you know I think uh, Mark Zuckerberg has also you know publicly said as well that he looks at Chinese. Uh, tech apps for ideas and inspiration. And of course, it, it makes sense, right? I mean, China is not only an enormous market, but it is such a dynamic market, uh, which makes it ferociously competitive. But, you know, as a consumer and as a business that consumes tech, 
you know, this is great, right? The, you know, everyone is trying to come up with new, better ways of doing things. Um, but, you know, the, the, the criticism then, of course, was that, you know, so of course, at the time, you know, what struck me, I was actually astonished that uh, 20 years ago, you know, that it made business sense to say, you know, can we find the next Google? Can we find, you know, the next Facebook? Um, was that, you know, some people, actually a, a surprising number would say, well, China can't innovate. Not that it's not ready or, you know, the conditions, the economic uh, situation doesn't encourage innovation, but that very flatly and so emphatically, China cannot innovate. And that just struck me as, as, as very, very strange. Yeah. But then, you know, then when WeChat did what WeChat did, um, you know, then the the, 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 the the conclusion was that, well, China can innovate, but only in China. Um, you know, things that it can do can never really uh, be widespread. Look at WeChat, right? It never really caught on in the U.S. or, or in Europe in the way that it did in China. Um, now, of course, you have the case of Huawei, which we, we touched on earlier, that Huawei, of course, unquestionably became a global leader in the technology space, not just in uh, handsets, but in 5G uh, equipment, um, you know, and some other uh, more narrow, but still technologically very significant fields as well. But now I think the, the real uh, success story, I would say the next success story for China tech is TikTok, right? So many people that are, you know, not so technologically inclined or, you know, don't care about these questions might say, oh, TikTok is just an entertainment app, uh, you know, of course, incredibly addictive, yada, yada, yada. Um, but uh, if you really look at it, it is the first or sort of, oh, I said one of the first, but certainly the first company to use AI uh, to become a globally successful consumer-facing product. Because you, know, you understand that uh, TikTok doesn't need to rely on a social graph, meaning like you look at Facebook, what makes it so effective is that it looks at what are your friends like to recommend things to you, you know, with the assumption that, well, if your friends like it, you'll like it too. Uh, now, you know, that means, of course, if you don't have a lot of friends, it's Facebook's going to have a hard time recommending things to you. And it takes time, right? You have to build out your network on Facebook. And then what Douyin or ByteDance, the, you know, the parent company of the Chinese uh, TikTok and TikTok did was they said, look, we're, we can build this algorithm you know, at the time, super impressive. I think, you know, somewhere I saw, I don't know if they publicly released this, but, uh, you know, many, many billions of parameters or variables. And all they needed was your own input that they could very quickly then kind of dial in, you know, what exactly would captivate you. <laughs> uh, and again, this was all done essentially with AI. And this allowed the company to bridge again, this culture gap to these weird countries, right? The Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic countries. And again, most people at the time would have said, you know, it's impossible for a company from China, from India, from Indonesia to succeed in these, uh, you know, advanced 
markets you know, with a cultural product because they just can't get it or it'll be so expensive. You have to hire a U.S. team. You have to hire an Indian team. And what they did, what uh, ByteDance did, was they essentially abstracted the problem, right, to say we're actually going to just build an algorithm that can figure out what you want without you know us really having to know you know, what do American teenagers like? What do Hindi, you know, Indian teenagers like? So, you know, again, I think this should put to rest this notion mm. that China cannot innovate. And of course, you know, you mentioned earlier, uh, space exploration, you know, mm. clear uh, an example of, of important technological breakthroughs and, and, and innovation. Mm. You're listening to The Bridge. Well, I guess this kind of your answer leads into my next question. Do you think most Westerners have a solid foundation for understanding the Chinese acceleration in science that's been taking place in the last decade? So, you know, people who are looking to partner in business and you're just general Joe on the streets. Do you think that they understand the the degree to which Chinese science is accelerating and participating in sorry, participating in the global economy? You know, my, my gut feeling is no. Um, but, you know, again, does it really matter, right? So for the average American, the average European, do they really need to know this? Uh, hard to say. Um, but what I think is important is that they, uh, I think, perhaps develop uh, a more complete understanding of China uh, you know, as I'm sure you know too, Jason. We've seen this downward spiral, um, not just in uh, China-U.S. relations, but American perceptions of China and the Chinese. And I think these are not unrelated. That um, you know, it's unfortunate, but I think Western media has played a very important role here in poisoning the uh, perceptions of many people around the world, certainly the uh, the Anglophone world, uh, of poisoning uh, people's perceptions against China. And, you know, I think this is uh, very unfortunate. And in fact, someone just, uh, you know, messaged me. One of the, you know, things I'm fortunate that I have the opportunity to do uh, as a researcher at, at a Chinese think tank like uh, CCG, the Center for China Globalization, is I get a lot of opportunities to interact with diplomats, including ambassadors, uh, government officials from other countries, uh, academics, other think tank people, because of course everyone wants to better understand uh, what China's doing and what it might do next. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of concern uh, not just amongst the, the Chinese about, you know, these media tactics. But, uh, you know, I've heard several times from, you know, very senior people that are not Chinese uh, that this contributes to a worsening environment that could contribute to, you know, in their words, World War Three. Mm. You know, I don't know if I would go so far as that, but still, you know, again, uh, I think this is related to, you know, that it, having the ordinary person, uh, uh, you know, the average Joe, um, better understand China. And again, I think in a holistic way that, you know, Chinese values, uh, the worldview is one based on benevolence. It's 
based on pragmatism and that, you know, that if people could more understand this and accept it and maybe overcome some of these distortions, um, mm. this poison, <laughs> that, uh, that the world would be a better place. You're listening to The Bridge. Well, I mean, my next question is also related to this, because this is really what our show is about. So we see some, you know, Joe Sixpack, I guess, in uh, the US and in China, maybe not always understanding one another as well as we'd all like. And certainly uh, scientists who are working on silicon wafers, for example, they're going to see eye to eye with their colleagues wherever they are, because they're very focused on what they're doing. And if someone understands what they're doing, they're going to be very, uh, you know, open to working with people around the world who are also working on the same problem. But what about other uh, kinds of intellects, like in the humanities, people who are studying global relations? Do you see communication uh, working well between uh, these kinds of intellectuals? uh, Or do you see communication breaking down as it is in other parts, uh, like in media? Well, so this is a complex question. Um, The, you know, I think you're right that we if we think about the the hard sciences the physical sciences that generally speaking <clears throat> uh you know their views and interests are in some sense more narrow you know they want to work if you're a, an american physicist or a chinese physicist you probably only care about working with the best physicists around the world in the pursuit of knowledge in the pursuit of technological breakthroughs um, and of course, we can see this in the humanities as well. Um, but the uh, argument or the counter argument from those that uh, you know have a broader perspective, and I would put people in the national security camp here, mm-hmm. is that I, I don't think it's illegitimate or wrong for Americans, Chinese, British to say, you know what, we have to look out for our own national self-interest. And this might mean uh, doing some things that will make some people unhappy, right? Um, so I think, and this is, again, is is the crux uh, of the problem here with technology, is that um, it used to be, uh, you know, much easier to uh segregate these kinds of questions. Um, So, you know, I think from the U.S. perspective, uh, the big challenge is, you know, can it reimagine itself, not as, you know, this unipolar uh, exceptional power, this hegemon uh, that can pretty much do whatever it wants and everyone else just has to accept it. Um, to becoming one of, if not many, but one of a few, uh, where it will have very real constraints mm-hmm. on what it's able to do um, that are grounded in reality. You know, if you are no longer the world's biggest economy, if you are no longer the clear technological leader in key areas, um, you know, it's logically follows, you know, your ability to dictate certainly will go down. I think this is the disconnect we're seeing that uh, many in the U.S., certainly many U.S. politicians, uh, you know, have not uh, made this or have at least have not explicitly acknowledged that, you know, this may be the new reality and are still living in the past 
Um, and this is, I think, makes it very dangerous. Um, mm. So again, it's it's a very complex problem. You're listening to the bridge. You uh, work a lot with scientists in addition to diplomats. Um, do you see science or sorry, let me ask this in a broader way. What are some constructive ways that our civilizations can work together? What what in your opinion? Yeah, I think that's another great question. Um, you know, I, I think that um greater openness and integration uh you know certainly has been beneficial. You know, we can probably place it under this rubric, uh, globalization. But we also have to recognize that globalization is certainly not a new thing. You know, let's go back to the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, You know, this actually is in some sense, besides a manifestation of this Chinese value of benevolence and, you know, being very, very pragmatic, you know, what should be done to actually improve the lives of people around the world. but it also is looking to, in a sense, recreate the ancient Silk Road. And um, so I think we can see here that uh, greater connectivity, greater integration uh, has generally been a good thing. And of course, you know, it has some local costs. You know, if you connect to a faraway source of manufacture uh, that does it better and cheaper than you, you know, some local people lose their jobs. Um, And, you know, even going back to Roman times, uh, I forget if it was Cicero or, or, you know, one of these Roman, very notable people complaining about uh, the Romans loving Chinese silk too much. Yeah, yeah. I think that was Cicero. Yeah. To make their Um, bodies sheen or something like that. Shimmer, yeah. Right. Um, and, and so, so, you know, the, again, these problems are not new either, but I think overall mankind benefits from mm. greater creation. So we, you know, adhere to this principle in an intelligent way. And I think, of course, this is, again, we can see Chinese pragmatism at work here in that, mm. um, you know, the, the U S is criticized China and in some cases acted very aggressively and provocatively um, because China does not follow the same ideological line as the United States. Um, you know, whereas China has always said, look, we're ready to work with anyone uh, as long as it's on the basis of mutual respect and, you know, at the country level, uh, respect for sovereignty, you know, these kinds of issues that individuals typically don't worry about. Um, but, you know, we're, we're willing to work with anybody. You can be a democracy. You can be, you know, a, uh, a country that is led by religious leaders, you know, like like Iran uh, and say, look, you know, let's find a way to build a shared future. We don't need to have shared values, but, you know, we can have our own values. We can have our own customs, et cetera. But let's work together uh, to build a shared future. And. I think, you know, that makes a lot of sense, whether we're talking about scientific collaboration, cultural collaboration, uh, trade, investments, etc. And, you know, of course, uh, for CCG, this is where uh, the Center for China Globalization falls on the ideological spectrum, right? So every think tank has some uh, position it's advocating for. And, you know, I think for CCG, 
it's more on the side of um, you know, greater openness and, and integration. You're listening to The Bridge. Um, I wanted to talk about Qin Gang. He is now the Minister of Foreign Affairs, formerly the ambassador of China to the United States just a few weeks ago, actually. And he said recently that he was, quote, deeply impressed with his American colleagues. Um, in terms of a relationship between the U.S. and China, uh, you've lived in both places. How do you think individuals, you know, people like you and me, can better support relationships between our nations and people? So, um, you know, I would say that certainly um, people to people relations matter a lot. Um, And, you know, what things you and I can do, I think, of course, is uh, share, um, you know, both sides, right? That, you know, you know, some things about China that may surprise, but also promote uh understanding and i would actually say sympathy right or empathy hmm. uh is very very important on, on both sides on both sides um when we move to the level of uh diplomats uh and senior government officials uh i would say that um the uh this is also very important and you know this might get into a little bit of a controversial uh academic uh, question, which I don't think we'll get into here, but, you know, in the world of international relations, there's different theories. And if you're a structural realist like John Mearsheimer, you know, you say basically people don't matter, right? That countries act because they, you know, are in an anarchic environment and they have to protect their interests. So whoever's the leader doesn't matter. But um, let me share an interesting example. So I had dinner last night um, with uh, Lord MacDonald, who is the former head of the British uh, Foreign Ministry, Foreign Service. And um, we were talking and, um, uh, you know, some topics came up. There was also um, a few other people there. Um, But that, um, you know, something very, very interesting came up. So I asked, you know, why do you think um, the transition from British hegemony to American hegemony uh, went so smoothly, or did it go as smoothly as, you know, I believe it went, or my, I understand that, that it went. And so the answer I got was very, very interesting. Um, it was that uh, people-to-people relations played a very, very important role. And, uh, you know, many people may know this. Uh, I may have known this, but I was reminded of it last night, uh, that Winston Churchill, uh, was half American. I didn't and, know that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. I, I might have read that somewhere long ago, but I didn't appreciate the significance of it. Um, but that as a result, you know, he had an affinity for the Americans and, of course, understood the Americans, you know, very well. Um, but also, uh, it wasn't just him, but there was a lot of intermarriage between Americans and the British. So, of course, I think this created, uh, you know, maybe a cohort of people who had favorable views Mm -hmm. towards the other. And I think that made it much easier uh, for the British to, you know, accept that they were no longer uh, in the driver's seat. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and, you know, unfortunately, I think we see the opposite phenomenon happening 
uh, here with um, with the with China and the U.S. Right? Hmm. That rather than you know some channel for I mean there still are of course uh, channels for people to people ties, but it hmm. seems that. Uh, you know, deliberately or not, um, you know, it's, there seems to be, you know, as part of this decoupling is to force people further apart, not bring them together. So, so increasing people to people exchanges via university mechanisms, work mechanisms, any kind that we can may actually decrease global tension. That's really interesting. Yeah. But also at the elite level as well. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, you know, if you have, uh, you know, senior officials that have, you know, lived in the counterparts country. How do you see uh, China's economic outlook for 2023? Uh, I think largely positive. Um, so we, we, we had Ray Dalio, uh, the legendary investor, uh, founder of Bridgewater Associates, um, one of the largest, I don't know if it's the largest, but certainly one of the largest uh, hedge funds speak at our think tank recently. And, you know, at the time, there was still a lot of uncertainty about uh, China's economic outlook. And he uh, said, predicted that he thought that uh, in 2023, China would probably grow about 5%. Mm -hmm. um, the IMF recently upgraded its forecast for China's 2023 GDP growth, more in line with, with Ray's uh, prediction estimate. Um, so, you know, again, I think that's a very positive signal. You know, my own view is, again, uh, you know, for whatever reasons, uh, you know, China's always portrayed in a very on the verge of collapse. Uh, <laughs> I know uh, the guy you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so, but, but I think, you know, certainly the spring festival experience, uh, you know, I think that We'll certainly see maybe uh, a little bit of overshooting in 2023, meaning there's some catch-up, pent-up demand, uh, that economic growth will be pretty strong. Uh, I'm more focused on the medium to longer term for China's economic growth, and I, I actually see a lot of reasons, structural reasons, to be positive besides the cyclical a rebound from COVID, um, but we probably don't have time to go into it. But I'll, maybe I'll leave it there. That I think 2023 will be a strong year for China. I think uh, the longer term economic uh, outlook is also more positive than I think is is commonly uh, reported. Mm. You know, uh, I know that your time is scarce and that you are a very very busy person. Thank you so much for making time for us. Thank you for joining the bridge, uh, Andy Mock. My pleasure, Jason. 